Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Joel as we begin a new series in this prophetical book. Last Lord's Day morning, we finished our several-year-long run through the Heidelberg Catechism, and so this morning we're beginning in Joel. If you do not know where that is, it's one of the minor prophets, which means it's towards the end of the Old Testament. It's over halfway through the Bible as you look at it. Uh, If you find Hosea and Daniel, then keep turning right. It's just a short book. Three chapters, as the Bible I have up here has it, just a little less than four pages, uh, but a lot to teach us about God because it is his inspired word just as much as everything else. So Joel, I'll begin reading in chapter 1 and verse 1 down through verse 14. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days, or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and laments, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it and help us to understand it this morning. Let's go to him in a time of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Joel, a book that we confess that we do not know well enough, but we know it is inspired by your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Spirit would enable us to be illumined this morning to understand what it is that he inspired all these thousands of years ago, that we would see more of you and who you are as a result. And we pray these things in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, Joel is one of what are known as the minor prophets. And if you were to look in an ancient Hebrew uh, Bible, you would find that it was part of a larger book called the Book of the Twelve, which had the twelve minor prophets as the ancient Hebrews saw them. And it was seen as one of a number of prophets who had come to Israel, one of a number of writings that were, in many cases, shorter than, say, Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. And that's why they're called minor prophets, not because their content is less important, not because they are less inspired than these other books, but because that they are, quite simply, shorter. And so as we come to Joel, we see that it doesn't waste much time in getting into the heart of the matter. 
and doesn't waste much time in getting into what it is that God has to say for his people. And as we go through in these next few weeks and see the message of the book of Joel, we'll see three themes that come up again and again and again throughout the book. The first is God's judgment on his people. But the second is expanding even beyond that to God's judgment on the nations. And finally, this is all pointing forward to the day of the Lord, that great judgment at the end. And Joel is meant to remind us of these things and to have us ask, where is our trust? Are we too focused on the things of this world, on lesser things? Or are we focused on the worship of the one who created all things, the one who has redeemed us? And are we recognizing that he does come in judgment? That the day of the Lord is coming, that it's coming as a thief in the night, and that will be the end. There will be no time to repent, no time to call out to him in grace and mercy on that day. And so as we come to this first section in Joel, we see that Joel is coming to a people who are in the middle of a situation, to put it mildly. There seems to have been some sort of locust invasion that has come. It was quite odd last night as I'm reviewing this one last time, and then I finish this and I take the trash out to the dumpster, kind of my Saturday night routine, and there are all these grasshoppers around. And I started thinking, oh yeah, that's a good reminder to me too, that the day of the Lord is coming. And I would also hope that it wasn't a manifestation of, you know, this grasshopper swarm that's coming. But it helps us to remember that the day of the Lord is coming. So we'll see three things, uh, really, this morning. Three headings that will help us to understand these first 14 verses of Joel. Coming to each of them in turn. But the first is quite simple, quite basic. And that is the prophet. And we can ask boys and girls at this point, what is a prophet? Because it just jumps in here, almost as if we're expected to know what this means. Now we read here in verse 1 that this is an introduction to Joel's prophecy, and that's really the entire introduction that we get. Just those few short words, and we can say, hey, wait a minute, what does this mean? I remember months and months ago during the middle of the uh, Sunday school season, I was in the high school catechism class, and I don't remember the context of this question, but I asked, what does a prophet do? And the answer that one of the high schoolers gave was, prophets prophesy. Now, I've liked that a lot. It's cheating, but I like it because it keeps it simple. And that's what we are to do as well, to try to keep things as simple as we can. But what is a prophet? What does it mean to prophesy? We sometimes have this idea in our head that a prophet is just someone who comes and tells the future in exhaustive detail. And certainly, you read the Old Testament prophets and then even the New Testament prophets, for example, the book of Revelation, and you see that there is some of that going on. But prophets had an even bigger role to play, and that was not the only thing that they did. That prophets really were, at their basic point, messengers who brought the message of God. That means that they were sent by God himself. Oftentimes, a prophet would have this experience, this vision, where he's brought into God's throne room, and he has this mind-melting, basically, experience of the glory of God. We think of Isaiah 6 for a good example of this. And that's what the ancient kings would do when they would send a messenger to their people or to another nation. They would bring the messenger into their throne room. The messenger would have to be impressed with the glory and the grandeur of the human king, and he'd be given the words to say and then sent out to say those words. That's what God was doing with his prophets. We read, for example, in 2 Peter 1, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along, by the Holy Spirit. And so a prophet is someone who is a messenger sent by God himself. And beyond that, in the Old Testament especially, a prophet is basically a covenant lawyer. Now, boys and girls, you probably haven't heard that term very often, a covenant lawyer. 
Remember, Israel was in covenant with God. They came to Mount Sinai, and God gave them these commands. And what did they say? They swore, all these things we will do. And of course, what happens? We read the rest of the Old Testament, we realize all these things they have not done. At a certain point, God has to send these prophets as his covenant lawyers, and basically he is suing his people. He's saying, see, this is what I said would happen if you didn't obey. It's happening, so turn to me, repent of your sins. And so that's a prophet. But who is Joel the prophet? We read in verse 1 these very simple words, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And if we're thinking, what do we know about Joel? That's about it. Unlike some of the other prophets we read about in the Old Testament, we don't have a lot of biographical information about him. We don't know where he come from other than being, came from other than being the son of Pethuel. It seems that he is ministering to the people of Judah, to the southern kingdom, but again, we have no real indication of what the date and the time period exactly is. We know it seems that the temple is there, and some people have said, well, this must mean it's before the exile, and some people have come along and said, well, no, this means it's after the return, and they've rebuilt the temple, and again, we don't know. But he seems to be in and around the place of Jerusalem, and perhaps the reason that these original audience wasn't given any more details is because he was a well-known prophet, that they knew who he was. He didn't need an introduction. In a sense, perhaps, that helps us because it's more broad. It doesn't give us the details, and perhaps it's easier in that way for us to hear what he has to say and to apply it to ourselves as well, because we are called to hear from this prophet. We are called to hear what he has to say to us, what he has to say from the word of God. And so God is calling us through this, through this prophecy of Joel, to remember how much we need his word. Remember that we need to hear it, we need to read it, we need to have it coming into our lives and speaking to us just as much as the people in Joel's day needed it. And we do have it. And so we can take comfort and we can take uh, recognition of the fact that we have the word of God and that we should listen to it, even as the ones who are hearing the prophets in the first place. And so now we come to his audience. As we don't know exactly when this is happening, We don't know if there is a king on the throne or if there is who he is. We don't know if the exile is coming or it's already come. But we know that there are people here who are suffering. People here who are wondering why is this happening and what is the response of us. And what Joel is doing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the messenger sent by God as he's pulling back the curtain. I think I've told you about this before, but when I was younger I went to something called zoo camp. I grew up in the Omaha area, and we have a world-class zoo there. It's between that and San Diego for the best zoo in the nation each and every year, depending on who has the newest exhibit that's open. And so as a kid in Omaha, you spend a lot of time at the zoo. You look at all the animals. You see the things in the aquarium and the sharks that are swimming over you as you walk down this glass, basically, tube, and you can see them all around. All these wonderful things around you. But for a week, when I was seven or eight years old, I got to go behind the scenes. Boys and girls, can you imagine that? You're behind the scenes where other people at the zoo can't see anything. They can't see you. You are walking above the sharks instead of underneath them. You're seeing where they take the elephants for their veterinary appointments. You're seeing all these wonderful things. The curtain has been pulled back, and you see behind the scenes. That's often what the prophets do. There are these things that are happening, these things that are happening perhaps on a large scale on the international scene or on a smaller scale in Israel or in Judah. And people are wondering, what's going on here? And the prophets come with a message from God, and they pull back the curtain, they take you behind the scenes, and they say, this is exactly what is going on, and this is why. 
And so what are we being called to do? What are the people being called to do as this prophet comes to them and shows them what is happening and why? Well, we see it in verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Joel begins his prophecy with these words of hearing and giving ear. We could say hearing and listening. We know, don't we, that just because someone hears us doesn't mean that they listen to us. We've probably heard that from the time we were very small children and been guilty of it, certainly. Joel is calling the people to hear and to listen to the word of the Lord. To hear what it is that he is coming to say and to hear about the day of judgment. Joel comes and he doesn't bring necessarily a happy report at the beginning. You read this first chapter and it just seems to be bad news after bad news. Just a report of what's happened and beginning to tell us why and interpret why it has happened. It's a hard word to hear. It's something that they would not have wanted to hear. We see again and again in the Old Testament, false prophets come and they bring messages of comfort where there ought to be none. They bring messages that God is not going to judge us. God is not going to break out in wrath against us because, of course, we have the temple in our midst and those sorts of things. That's not what Joel is doing. He's bringing a hard word. He's bringing a word of judgment. And he's calling the people to hear it. And brothers and sisters, he's calling us to hear it too. We know that we're made of the same stuff that they were. That we live in a different place, in a different time, but we have many of the same temptations that they faced. We know that we have a temptation to only listen to the things that we want to hear. To only agree with the word of God when we already agree with it in the first place. But God is not calling us to do that. God is calling us to hear him. To hear the words of his prophet. To hear the words of his word. And so this is the prophet. This is the setting for this prophecy that Joel brings to them. But then we see our second main heading this morning. Not only is there the prophet, but there is the disaster. And Joel has something of a a different way of coming. Oftentimes prophets would come and say, if you don't return to God, this is going to happen. It's going to be judgment from him. Joel seems to have come after the judgment has already struck. He's telling these people of what has happened. He's reminding them as if they could forget of what they have just experienced. And the plague that has come to them is a plague of locusts. Reminds us, doesn't it, boys and girls, of one of the plagues that came upon Egypt. As God in his wrath was breaking out against that country that would not let his people go, now all these generations and generations and hundreds of years, centuries later, he's bringing the same thing to his people. This disaster had already occurred. The locusts had already swept through and eaten everything But there was something more to come. We'll see that in these three chapters of Joel again and again and again. That he's going to take this thing that has happened. This terrible earth shattering event. And point ahead to something that's even more earth shattering. The day of judgment. The day of the Lord. Now there is some debate over whether or not these are real locusts. Or it's just kind of a way of describing an army that comes in. But if you look at the details of the text. If you look at the things that it's explained as what is happening, it seems that these really are real locusts that have come in. And that was not an uncommon thing. It was fairly common in those days to see wave after wave of locusts, to see swarms of locusts coming in. And they would just take everything and eat it down to the bare bones and then move on. Boys and girls, you've probably never seen anything like this. And I pray that you never have to. But we know that some of these things still happen and still have happened in recent memory. 
I'm reminded of perhaps the fires that sometimes we see raging in California. I remember in northern, California, northern San Diego County, when I was in seminary, there was a fire that was kind of not too far from the campus, and there was always that idea of if the wind changes, if something happens, we may need to evacuate. And there's that idea of fear that's introduced into your head. In that sense of what are we going to do if this comes because the fire is going to be everywhere. And of course, by God's grace, it didn't come that far. But a few months later, I remember driving up north, going into the areas where the fire had been raging months previously, and there was nothing. There were these trees without leaves, and the trees were all blackened. All the grass and the bushes had been destroyed, taken away by the fire. I began to see what a desolate place really looked like. That's what the locusts would do. Instead, except instead of leaving the trees black, they'd leave them white because they would even eat the bark off the trees. There are stories of more modern days of locusts getting into people's houses in these swarms and eating their tables and their doors. All these things that are made of wood, just ravenous, eating everything that they could possibly find. Some modern desert swarms of locusts can cover 460 square miles. Now think about that. 460 square miles, and each square mile is somewhere between 40 and 80 million locusts. That swarm, according to scientists, can eat 423 million pounds of plants each day. And it isn't often just a one-day occurrence. It can go for days and days and days. We have even a record from the 16th century, from the time of the Reformation, of a locust swarm coming into a town and eating and eating and eating, and one wave would come, and they'd be there for a day, and they'd move on. The next wave would come and be there for a day and move on. And this happened for five straight days. And there was nothing left. That is the plague that has come upon Israel. It's unlike anything in memory, because, of course, locusts were not unusual. Locusts were not something that was strange to the people. What we see in verse 2, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And of course the answer is no. We've seen locusts. We've lived in this place for generations. We've seen the flora and the fauna around us. We've seen these insects, these creepy crawlies that come here and again. We've never seen anything like this. It may surprise you to know that locusts The locust is the most commonly referred to animal in the Old Testament. And that the language of Hebrew has nine different words to refer to locusts. And so they're common. This is not an unusual thing for the people to have locusts come and to have locusts around them and to have problems with them, especially as an agrarian society that had to deal with having farming as their main source of food in the middle of the desert. But this swarm was different. Joel tells us again and again, starting here and in other places, this was an unusual happening. This was something that was coming essentially as God's judgment. We read in Deuteronomy 28 these words, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And he gives curse after curse after curse. If you have a chance to read Deuteronomy 28, you realize how many curses can come upon Israel. But you get to verse 38 and you read, You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. It seems that the reason that this great swarm of locusts had come upon Israel at this point in time, come upon God's people at this time and place, is because of their sin, because they have forsaken him, have forsaken the covenant that they made with him. 
And so God's judgment is coming upon them. And we read in verse 3, Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. This is going to be something that ought to be remembered, and ought to be told for generations to come. It wasn't just a common, ordinary thing. This is something that was different. This was something that showed God's judgment. They were supposed to remember the devastation. To remember what the locusts had come and done. To remember what they had done to their crops, to their livelihood, to all the different things that we're going to see in just a minute. And they were to remember also the inspired interpretation of it. They were to remember that this was the judgment of God. And they were to remember what God had come and told them about these things through his prophet Joel. To bring these things to the next generation. They were called to do many of the same things that we're called to do. To tell Uh, future generations what God has done and who he is and often we think of that as a wonderful thing and it is a wonderful thing and we get to show and share the grace and mercy of our God and the people of Israel would say that too but they're also meant to share his judgment to share what he had done to this land that was his land in the first place as a result of the sins of the people to show, show his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Again, Joel is bringing a hard word to them. But even in this hard word, there is the signs of mercy. Because think about it, this could have led to an entire society collapsing in those days. Imagine you're an ancient Israelite or an ancient resident of Judah, and you don't have sprinkler systems, and you don't have irrigation, and you don't have pesticides, and all these things that we're kind of accustomed to today, and the locusts come in, and they take everything, and there's no international relief organizations that are coming in and helping you. The UN isn't showing up with trucks full of food. There's a very real chance that you will not make it, right? That if the famine gets severe enough, and it seems as we're going to see later in chapter 1, there's a drought too, maybe everyone's going to die. Maybe this is the end. Maybe this is the end of God's faithfulness. Maybe his people are going to come to an end, and yet we see, well, we're commanded to tell this to our generations to come. There is an implied promise here that this is not the end. And as God is bringing in this locust army instead of the human army, as he did in the book of Judges, we know again and again in that book that we come to the Judges cycle where the people sin, and God sends an army to invade them, and they turn to God, and he takes the army away. He's doing something very similar here, except it isn't humans. It's an army full of six-legged soldiers. And he's calling the people to repentance. And so that is our third and our final heading this, evening, or this morning, the response. We've seen the prophet and who he is and what he does. We've seen the disaster and how shocking and terrible it is and how it comes from God himself. But now we see the response that is meant to lead to the people. And we see there are really three groups that Joel highlights here. Starting in verse 5, we see the drunkards, as he says. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white." And so the first group he comes to, maybe not who we expect. If you were to hear of a prophet who's coming, and the result of all this devastation is that no one has any food, no one has anything to come around and to feed themselves and to put on their tables, that all of our livelihoods are being slowly wiped away, and you hear they're going to come and give a message, that the prophet's going to come and give a message from God, 
perhaps the drunkards are the least likely group that he's going to start with. So we can ask, what is he doing? Why is God sending Joel to these three groups in particular and in this order? Well, we see that they all have different relations to the crops that have been destroyed. And they all have suddenly various needs that God is calling them to recognize. And who were the drunkards? Well, the drunkards were the ones who had become complacent, who had cut themselves off really from the cares and concerns of this life, who were only after the bottle, essentially. And what God is coming and saying is, now is the time for you to wake up and face reality. Because there will be no more wine. There will be no more beer, as it were, in the early forms of beer that they had. There will be no more of this alcohol for you to drink and to become drunk with because the locusts have taken it all. He's calling them to wake up, to see life as it really is. And really, I think he begins with the drunkards because this was, in a miniature form, what all the people of God had been doing. They weren't all drunkards, perhaps, physically. But spiritually, perhaps, they were. They were unconcerned with the things of God. They were going through the motions. They were cutting themselves off from reality. They weren't paying attention to how things were. They were becoming very, very complacent. And they're called to wake up and to see reality and to cry out as a result, to recognize all the things that they had been trusting in other than God were suddenly going away. That God himself had taken away all these things. And so he calls to the drunkards. But not just the drunkards. He comes to the second group, the priests, starting in verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. And so now he turns to the priests and the ministers, the ones who were meant to be doing the sacrifices and the rituals at the temple. And he's telling them to lament and to wail. He uses the example of a virgin whose husband has been taken away. And now we read that and we think, well, how does that work? We have to remember that ancient marriages and ancient marriage ceremonies were different than what we have. There were really two stages. There was the betrothal, which is much more intense and much more binding than our engagements. And you could, at that point, when you're betrothed, refer to this person as my husband or my wife. But you're still waiting for the finality, for the final ceremony to come, for you to actually live together and be a husband and wife. And it's this picture of a virgin who has been betrothed to a man, that she has someone she can call her husband, and he is taken away from her in death. Before the finality comes, before the second stage of the marriage can come about. And so instead of being dressed in all the finery of a marriage day, she is dressed in sackcloth. She is dressed in black, in mourning clothes. A widow before she had even truly become a wife. That is the idea of the pain and the the, uh, suffering that are coming to the priests. That they are called to cry out to God. To wail to God. And why? Well, for a number of reasons. For one, the offerings are going to have to stop. At least some of the offerings. We know as we read in the law of God that what he had prescribed for his people is for morning and evening offerings, morning and evening sin offerings, and to go along with this lamb that was to be slain each morning and evening, there was meant to be a grain offering and a drink offering. Those things had gone away now. There were no more crops. There was not going to be any more grain. There was not going to be any more wine or oil. As Joel tells us, these things that were so important in the worship of Israel. And so the normal things that they would do were cut off now. 
How could they worship God in the way that he had prescribed if he had taken away all the resources they had to do so? And of course, we know that the priests got their resources, their living, their food from the offerings that were brought to the temple in the first place. And so not only are the drunkards without what they need, the priests are without what they need, and then he comes and turns to the farmers in verses 11 and 12. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of men. And of course, this is the most obvious group that's affected. Their livelihood is affected the most. They are the ones who have seen their own crops disappear in a matter of just days. And these things are going to affect everyone. Wheat was generally what the rich ate, and barley was generally the food of the poor, and it's all gone. Rich and poor, no matter who you may be, this is going to affect you. And so God calls these three groups of the prophet Joel to lament and to wail and ultimately to repent. What Joel does in verse 13 is key for the entire book, as we'll see in chapters to come. He calls for a national repentance, a national lament. He calls for a fast. And it's ironic, isn't it? He calls for a fast after God has already begun the fast for them. Basically, God has said, you have been relying too much on these things. You have become too complacent. You are relying too much on things other than me. You need to fast and remember that all these things come from me, and I'm going to get you started by taking away your food in the first place. God has begun this fast for his people. In verse 13, we see that the priests are called to come into the temple of God in sackcloth and to keep it on at night as well. In this rough, uncomfortable clothing, it was very unusual to have it on during the night. This is showing how serious this is. That they are to repent of the sins, not only themselves, but of all the people. And in this time of distress, where are they to look? Well, this is where we begin to see the hope of the book of Joel come out. They weren't just to despair. They weren't to go to someone else or to somewhere else. They were to go to look to Yahweh, to God at the temple. They were to go to their covenant Lord and to be the people who repent to him. And this presupposes that they have a relationship with him already and that he will hear them. The fact that they are called to repent and to cry out to God shows that he, in the first place, is gracious and merciful and that he may hear an answer in the first place. As they're called to come into the temple, they are called not to look to the gods of the nations around them. We know that that was a temptation. I heard a great illustration this week that in the ancient world, gods and goddesses were basically like service providers today. And you'd pay certain things to them and they'd give you what you wanted. And so today we pay the bill for our Wi-Fi and we get our Wi-Fi. We pay the bill for our water and our electricity and we get those things. And we can't pay one and expect the other. And the ancient people will go to one god and say, we need fertility for our animals. Another god and we say, we need rain. Another god say, we need victory in war. And if we just do the right things and we offer these things to them, then they will give us what we need. What Joel is calling the people to do is to come to the only one who can truly help. The one who can give them all things and who will give them all things. And by the way, God has emptied their hands. They don't have anything to bring to him at this point. They can't go to him with these sacrifices that they normally would and say, okay, because of this, we give God what he needs and we, give, we get what we need from him. All these things have to come from God in the first place. And how are they to go to God then? Well, with empty hands and with humility. They brought nothing to him and they needed everything from him. 
As we read in Psalm 51, these words of David, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And not only were the ancient people of Judah meant to come to God in this way, but brothers and sisters, so are we. To recognize that we carry nothing in our hands that we can offer to him that he needs. That we cannot give him anything that he does not already possess, but that we require of, every, of him everything that we need for this life. Physically, spiritually, all of it comes from him. To recognize that we are not dependent upon ourselves. That even though we live in a modern society with all this technology and all these fail-safes and safety nets to catch us, that we are just as dependent upon God as they were if a locust swarm came through. To recognize that God's judgment is real, that he is a holy one, but that he calls us to repent. He calls us to cry out in the direction of his mercy. And so we recognize here that all of us have sinned. We've already heard that. We've already recognized that even in the face of the Beatitudes that we are not this individual perfectly. We hear in God's law hard things, not because they themselves are wrong, but because we ourselves are sinners. We know that we have sinned still. Even though we may be trusting in Christ, even though that might be the case for, gener- for decades, and that God, through the Holy Spirit, is working in our hearts, that we still need to repent to him. And so as we begin this book of Joel, that's really the first word that comes to us. Remember who you are, but remember who God is. Remember that you are a sinner, but remember that God is the one who is gracious and merciful and who will hear sinners as they repent, and therefore go to God and repent. Cry out to him. Throw yourself on God's mercy and grace, ultimately in Jesus Christ as we see it. Recognize that there is a day of judgment coming that it's far more severe than anything that locusts could come and bring about. That the last judgment will come, that there will not be a chance to repent after this. But in the meantime, we are called to repent, to trust in Christ and in Christ alone, to remember that ultimately he paid our penalty on the cross. As we'll see beginning next week, that the day of the Lord is coming, and that's a terrifying thing if you do not have the grace and mercy of God, if you are left out on your own and exposed. But we can know that we do not have to be exposed. That we have a Savior, we have a Messiah, we have someone who came and did what we were unable and unwilling to do. And so remember these things. Ask God for the strength to continue to repent to him, to continue to trust in Christ, to continue to worship in spirit and in truth, not going through the motions. That's what Joel is calling them to do in verses 13 and 14, to stop just paying God lip service and to actually come to him as the one who gives them all things, as the one who brings grace and mercy in the face of their repentance. And so God is calling us to remember that everything comes from his hand. That the day of the Lord is coming, certainly. And that the remember, and we are called to remember that the judgment of our sin has fallen upon Christ and to live in light of it, to worship God not just with our lips, but with heart and mouth, body and soul, with all that we are. To go to him with empty hands and to expect him to fill them up. And to keep these things in mind, because this is who he is. Even in the midst of judgment, there is hope. Even in the midst of the woe that fell upon Israel, there is the message of grace. And that's what we see again and again in Joel. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this minor prophet for Joel, for this short book that packs such a punch as we consider the things that it tells us about you and who you are and what you've done. We know, Lord, that if left to ourselves, we deserve nothing but your judgment. We know, Father, that we are often in the place of these ancient people of Judah. We are often relying on other things, that we are often just going through the motions in our worship. We know, Lord, that if left to ourselves, we would deserve far more than what they got on this day than the locust swarm came. But we also know, Lord, that we have an advocate with you, that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you'll help us to see these things, to realize and recognize the reality of your judgment, and to throw ourselves on the mercy and grace of Christ as a result. And we pray these things in his name and in his name alone. Amen.